Let's pray. Father God, as we reflect on your word now, as we let it soak into and apply it to our hearts, I pray that you would be with all of us, though we are sinful people, conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ, and that you would be with me, even though I am a sinful man, as I seek to preach his word. Pray all of this in his name. Amen. So in the book of Psalms, there is this psalm that weirdly kind of haunts me, that I find myself thinking about often, and, and that's strange to me because it's, it's kind of a weird little psalm. The book of Psalms is this collection of hymns for Israel to sing, and let me just read Psalm 120 to you, because I feel like in many ways it sets the stage for my heart as I think about the topic we're going to dive into. But this is God's word. It says, In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me, Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the Kents of Kedar too long. Have I made my dwelling among those who hate peace? I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. That psalm often floats through my head for two reasons. One is because it feels, in a sense, like it could be written about the world today, doesn't it? This world full of lying lips and deceitful tongues, this world always banging the drums of war and never at peace. Feels like, except maybe for the stuff about Meshech and Kedar, that some modern poet could have written that about the world that we inhabit. And I find myself reflecting on it because of the fact that I often fall short of the righteousness that it portrays. Whenever the psalmist invites us to see someone as righteous, that's not someone that we're supposed to and fully see ourselves in. Hopefully we see some glimmers of ourselves, but that's supposed to be aspirational, meaning it's supposed to give us an image of righteousness that reminds us that we fall short of it and need to pursue it. And that's certainly true here. There are times that I have lying lips. There are times that I hate peace and love conflict. Thinking about all of that because of our topic this morning, our calling to speak peace. Over the last few weeks and for next week as well, we're spending some time just reflecting on the different things that Scripture says about how we talk to and about each other, about how we speak and relate to each other. And as we think about speaking Jesus in these different areas, part of that has to do with our call to pursue peace. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're just going to first talk about a vision of peace and what that even means and our calling to seek it. And then we're going to talk very practically about some ways to pursue that peace. And then we're going to finish up by reflecting a little bit on how we can grow into that. So speaking peace, first of all, we need a vision for what that word peace even means. So in the book of Ephesians, in chapter 2, which we read from this morning, Paul proclaims this hope of peace. Think about in verse 217, for example. He says, And Jesus came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. So Paul's talking about peace between these two groups of people. And in the case of Ephesians here, he's talking specifically about peace between Jews and Gentiles, 
The Jews and Gentiles were two different cultural and religious groups in the ancient world, and they despised each other and did not get along with each other, but they were both a part of the early church. The early church included both Jews and Gentiles, and Paul is saying that Jesus came to make peace between these two groups. But what does that mean? What does it look like for that peace to be proclaimed? Well, verse 19, Paul says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So, so he says you, and he's speaking specifically to Gentiles because Paul's Jewish, he's saying, you are no longer a stranger, an alien to me. You're no longer someone different from me, but rather you are, first he says, a fellow citizen with the saints, that you and I are both citizens together in God's kingdom, which is a way of saying that suddenly these two identities that we have, now instead we're having this one shared identity. What Paul is describing there is reconciled relationship, that there are these two groups that are hostile to and opposed to each other, but that part of peace means that their relationship is reconciled and they're brought together in unity. So reconciled relationship. And then we also get the stuff about their, their members of the household of God, and Paul expands on that in the next verses. Listen to how he describes this. He says, he's talking about Jesus, and he says, in whom the whole structure, meaning that household of God, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. You, or in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So Paul says peace doesn't only mean that we're reconciled in relationship, but also that we're somehow being restored as a community, that we have this shared purpose together, that we're being joined and connected to each other in this way that is then on mission for God and is becoming this, this dwelling place for God on earth through which he actually becomes present in the world. Here's why we need to reflect on the fact that that is what peace is. Oftentimes in our world, when we use that English word peace, we tend to just mean an absence of immediate conflict, an absence of immediate conflict, like, like the United States is at peace with China or Iran. That does not mean, though, that we, that we are restored and unified and connected and love each other. That just means we're not actively killing each other right now. Or even on a more personal level, we use peace to say, like in a dysfunctional family, right? We say that we're keeping the peace, and by that we do not mean that we're drawing people together in forgiveness and love and harmony. What we mean is just we're avoiding any immediate explosions of anger, but the, the simmering hatred and division is still very much there. Peace, the way we often use it, just means an absence of immediate conflict. But in Scripture, peace always means reconciled relationships and restored communities reconciled relationships, people being brought together in, in love, in mutual respect and delight with each other, sharing together in this one identity. And restored community being people being brought together in service, people being brought together in God's mission, people being brought together in this way that builds them up where they are living side by side, doing the things that human beings are called to do. Restored relationship and restored community. Ultimately, another way to put that is that biblically, peace means all of creation working the way it is meant to work. That when sin comes into the world, when we rebel against God, we break the peace of the world, 
and all of the bitterness and hatred and division and violence and all the other things that afflict our world are a result of our peace-breaking. But that peace, therefore, and, a, and, and having peace means being restored to what we were created to be. That is Scripture's vision of peace. And we are called to seek that kind of peace as Christians. When Paul says that Jesus came and preached peace, that means that we're supposed to hear what Jesus says and try to apply it to our lives. Jesus himself in the Beatitudes says, Blessed are the peacemakers, meaning we're called to seek to work peace in the world. When the psalmist says, I am for peace, that is supposed to speak to us about our attitude and place in the world. Part of our calling as Christians is to have that biblical vision of peace and then in our lives to promote it, to promote and, and pursue and live out reconciled relationship and restored community. So that's the vision. In just a minute, I want to talk very practically about how we can seek to do that in our relationships and with our words. But coming out of that vision, I actually think it's important to say, uh, to make an application right away that's going to be in the background of everything else we said. And that is that we need to recognize up front that if that is our vision for peace and our calling is to seek peace, that means that we can actually fail in that calling if we settle simply for an absence of immediate conflict. Our calling is to seek peace, not just settle for an absence of immediate conflict. And the reason we need to point that out is because seeking that biblical vision for peace will often actually feel less peaceful in the short term. Just generally, we as human beings have a tendency to try to manage our issues rather than seeking healing. We, we try to manage the stuff that's wrong in our lives rather than seeking to have it healed. I mean, that's true on all kinds of levels. And the reason we do that is because the first steps of seeking healing are almost always going to be more painful than the present. Even though our issues are causing us some amount of pain and causing some amount of destruction in our lives, the first steps of seeking healing are almost go always going to feel more painful. I mean, you think about that in like a broken friendship, right? Where two people kind of are, you know, are not talking to each other. Uh, to, to, to pursue healing in that friendship is almost always going to, the first thing that's going to happen is that they're going to have a fight, that they're going to actually express their anger. Or you think about even something personal, like a hidden bad habit, right? The first steps in kind of bringing that to the light and exposing it so that you can start to address it are going to actually feel like your life is falling apart more than just managing that bad habit. And that is just a reality. Of course, that doesn't mean we shouldn't seek healing, right? We recognize that going through that initial pain is the only way to actually have fuller life and real restoration in those things. That, that if you're in the throes of addiction or this brokenness in your life, that the pain you experience by addressing it in the short term is much less than the pain that it actually is going to bring over the long term. But nonetheless, it's hard up front. And I say all of that because there's this counterintuitive truth we need to recognize, which is that one of the greatest enemies of seeking peace is trying to avoid conflict entirely. One of the enemies of seeking peace is trying to avoid conflict entirely. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that conflict in itself is good, but the issue is that conflict avoidance, just trying to keep everything from exploding and bubbling over, that's a management strategy. But peace, in the biblical sense we just saw it, is about seeking healing. 
And so right up front, we need to understand as we talk about these practical ways that we're called to speak and seek peace in our lives, that oftentimes part of speaking that peace is going to involve doing hard and painful things, especially things that are hard and painful in the short term, having tough conversations. So don't let that that lie get to you that just because you're avoiding kind of like immediate violent conflict that that is peace-seeking. Bear in mind that peace in that reconciled relationship, restored community sense is something much deeper. But that said, we are called to seek peace. How do we do it? Well, to make this very practical, here's what I want to suggest. I want to suggest that there are three shapes that we need to watch out for. Three shapes that actually drive conflict. Lines and circles and triangles. Let me explain each of those so that you can see what I mean. The first shape that we need to watch out for as we seek to speak peace is lines, which is to say lines that we draw between people to keep us from identifying with them. Read Ephesians 2.14, which describes the work of Jesus. Paul says this, it says, For Jesus himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The dividing wall of hostility. By that, Paul means this line that is drawn between, in this case, Jews and Gentiles, because that's the division he's addressing. That there are these lines, these walls that we erect in the world between these are my people and these are not my people, between these are the people whose side I'm on and these are the people that I am against. And drawing those lines is foundational to conflict. Our calling as Christians is not to live with those dividing walls in place, but rather like Jesus to seek to break them down because in Jesus they have been broken down. Here's what that means practically. Think about this. Romans 12. You can flip there if you want to. But in Romans 12, the Apostle Paul is starting to give practical instructions to the church in Rome, and he addresses a bunch of things about our community. And pick up in verse 14, he says this. He says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Now, those seem like a bunch of isolated commands, but what's striking is about how each of those commands is really a call to cross some line that we might draw in the world, a call to cross a line. Start at the end. He says, never be wise in your own sight, meaning don't draw lines in the world where that around like people who are correct or smart like you, and then people who are wrong or not as smart like those other people, right? Don't draw lines based on whether you think you're right or wrong, smart or less intelligent. Don't be haughty but associate with the lowly, meaning don't draw lines in the world based off of culture and class. Don't think that you're better than anybody else. Don't look down on other people because they're somehow different from you. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We have a tendency even to draw these subtle lines that simply keep us from sympathizing with and empathizing with other people. I mean, you, you see it most clearly when you recognize that there are people who, when they're rejoicing, what you feel is jealousy. That means there's a line you've drawn. Or that when they're weeping, what you feel is glad. There's a line you've drawn where rather than saying, this is someone like me, if you're feeling that way, 
It's because you've said that this is somebody other than me. And even then at the end, bless those who persecute you, meaning don't even draw lines between yourself and your enemies, between yourself and those who are out to get you. Let's talk practically about what that means when we think especially about our words. First of all, that call to not draw lines, but rather to cross them, means that we need to watch out for words and ways of speaking that draw such lines. We need to watch out for ways that we put people into different groups. Now, this one can be tricky for us to process through because, look, there is a natural human tendency to group things together based on common features. And that's not inherently wrong, no. The fact that you're like, oh, you know, this is a Texan and this is a New Yorker. This person's an American and this person is British. That, you know, Republican and Democrat, Patriots fan and the Packers fan, I don't, whatever the, the groups are we put people into, that's, that's normal to some extent. But it is also dangerous. It's something we need to be wary of. So, so let me suggest, here is the test to use for those groups and lines and categories. The test comes down to a simple question. First, recognize when you are labeling people. Recognize when you're putting people into a group. And then ask, is that label, is that group serving as an excuse to love them less? Is it serving as an excuse to seek peace with them? To say, I know I should seek to have reconciled relationship and love this person, but they're blank. And that blank is the group you put them into. If that is the case, then that is a line you probably need to just stop drawing in the world because it's leading your heart to sin. So we need to watch out for words that draw lines, and then we need to use words that cross lines. We should intentionally speak about people in ways that share or that stress our shared humanity. We need to speak of our fellow human beings as image bearers of God, valuing them and respecting them. We need to speak of our fellow believers as brothers and sisters in the household of God. We need to talk about people in ways that respect their stories, their gifts, that, that listen and learn from them and understand them as, um, as just as intelligent, just as beautiful, just as valuable as we are. Use words that cross lines. So, all right, lines are one of the shapes we need to avoid as we're seeking peace. The second shape we need to avoid is circles. Circles. What do I mean by circles? Well, the thing that we need to understand about conflict in our world is that conflict almost always runs in a cycle. It almost always forms a circle that feeds itself. So if you ever talk to two people that are in conflict and you sit them down and talk with them about it, both sides are going to tell you it's the other person's fault. And the key thing to understand is that usually to some extent they're both right. And what almost always happens in conflict is that maybe one person hurt the other person first in some way, although maybe they didn't even realize it or maybe there was a misunderstanding, but then the other person strikes back and then the first person strikes back at them. And soon what you have is this cycle that feeds itself and that people end up trapped. Both of them are saying like, well, I would end the conflict, but the other person has done these things, is doing these things, and so peace cannot come. The only way to pursue peace in the face of circles is to break them, to figure out how to break that cycle of hurt and wrong. So what does that look like? Well, biblically, 
The goal for breaking circles is what is called reconciliation. Reconciliation means taking the two sides of the circle and bringing them together and in peace. Jesus works reconciliation for us. We saw again in Ephesians 2, it says that Jesus might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Jesus reconciles us there to God, which we'll talk to more in a minute, and also to each other. So our hope is reconciliation, and the way that reconciliation begins in Scripture is through forgiveness. Forgiveness is the foundation upon which reconciliation can hopefully be built. The Bible, I don't know that this is news to us, but the Bible regularly commands us to forgive each other. Consider Colossians 3. It says that we are to be bearing with one another in love, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So we are called to bear with each other and forgive each other. We're called to do that because God has forgiven us. Indeed, Scripture deeply links our forgiveness and God's. Jesus, for example, in Matthew 6 on the Sermon on the Mount says, But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Which is to say, forgiveness is a big deal. What does that mean to forgive someone? Well, like we just said, there's this link between our forgiveness and God. So what does it mean when God forgives us? Psalm 103 puts it like this. It says, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. So what it means when God forgives us is that he does not deal with us or repay us according to the things that we have done wrong. That instead of demanding that we make amends for our sins, that we make up for them, that we pay off the debt of our of the destruction of our rebellion, God chooses not to treat us the way our sins deserve. That's what it means when God forgives us, and that's what it means when we forgive other people. It means that we choose not to let those people be defined by their sins, and therefore choose not to treat them as their sins deserve, not to pay them back according to the, what the wrong things they've done to us deserve. Or to put it in another way, forgiving someone means intentionally committing to giving our relationship a new beginning. To say, you know what, I don't care what's happened in the past. I don't care what the circle's been. At this point, I'm going to let the circle end. I'm not going to let it continue. It ends here with me, and we're going to have a new beginning where I do not then act towards you the way that is warranted by how you've acted towards me. Practically, that means a couple of things. You could preach a whole sermon on forgiveness. Let me just give a couple of specific things it means. One, it means that forgiveness means not returning to the past, not returning to the past in our hearts or with our words. If conflict involves this circle between two people, it also involves this circle in our hearts, that what we do in our hearts is we return back to the past, we remember those things that the person has done for us. We replay those conversations and those events. We bring them up to ourselves over and over. And then it leads to a circle oftentimes in our speech. You, you have experienced this. If you've ever been in a fight where it's just like, why did you leave that towel on the floor? And soon it escalates into everybody listing on both sides all the wrong things that the person has done over the last 20 years. That's a circle that drives conflict. And forgiveness means refusing to engage in that circle, saying, I am not 
going to speak about the things that you did wrong in the past. No matter how angry I'm feeling right now, if it's forgiven, I'm going to choose never to speak of those things. And it means I'm not going to return to them internally. But when I find myself thinking back and kind of gnawing that bone about those past hurts, I'm going to say, no, it's forgiven. I'm going to choose not to return to that. Forgiveness means not returning to the past. And it's also practically important to recognize that forgiveness, that kind of forgiveness, means that it's always going to start one-sided. Part of why people get trapped in that circle is because both of them might have some desire for the conflict to end, but they're both demanding that the other party take the first step. They're saying, well, I would forgive them, but first they have to apologize. First they have to change. First they have to come to me and seek forgiveness. And I get that feeling, but that is why you are stuck, because both people are doing that. The only way to pursue that biblical kind of forgiveness means you're going to have to say that regardless of where the other person is at right now, I'm going to take the step of forgiving them. Again, it's saying that the circle ends here with me, because I cannot make this other person do something, but I can control myself. Forgiveness always has to start one-sided. And then forgiveness means that we are hoping for and seeking reconciled relationship. But that is not something that we will necessarily always find. Let me explain that. Forgiveness means, on the one hand, that we are hoping for that reconciled relationship. Remember, reconciliation is the ultimate goal. Forgiveness is the first step towards it. We are hoping that we can have that friendship again, that we can have that love and communion and fellowship with each other again in forgiveness. And if we say we forgive without any hope of that, we probably haven't really forgiven. But it's also important to recognize that unlike forgiveness, reconciliation is not something that we can do on our own because it always requires both sides. Really, when we talk about reconciled relationship, we're saying that we're building a new circle where instead of hurt and bitterness and wounds that flow back and forth, what's flowing back and forth is love and value and respect and service. That's reconciled relationship. But that takes both sides. And one of the Bible verses that always strikes me as like the most practical, wise verses, in Romans 12, 18, which is just before what we read from Romans 12, the Apostle Paul says, If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So he's saying, seek peace, seek reconciled relationship and restored community with all people, if it's possible, as much as it depends on you. Let me try to make that concrete to help you understand what I'm saying here. Think about a dysfunctional relationship, maybe with a friend or family member, someone who is manipulating or abusing or mistreating you. In that relationship, there are two things that you are called to. One is that you are called, regardless of the other person, to seek to forgive them, to not let bitterness and hatred simmer, to not kind of strike back at them, but to seek to forgive them. And two, you are called, as much as it depends on you, to do the things that could lead to reconciliation in your relationship. But a reconciled relationship is going to require something of them as well. In that case, it's going to probably require that the abuse, the manipulation, the mistreatment stops. Because you can't be reconciled if they're still treating you that way, if they haven't turned from those sins and repented and sought forgiveness as well. And so you are called to forgive the person and do what you can to seek reconciliation, but it's also true that you are not responsible for the relationship being reconciled. It's appropriate until they turn from those behaviors for you to still keep boundaries in place. But that said, as much as it depends on you, seek to break the circle, pursue reconciliation. 
So lines and circles, and then one last shape, triangles. We need to watch out for triangles. Here's what I mean by that. When two people are in conflict with each other, two things tend to happen at once. One is that when those people are in conflict, they stop communicating with each other. They stop talking to each other, at least about the source of the conflict. And the second thing that happens is they start talking to somebody else, which means that instead of this, this arrow kind of pointing at each other, they create a triangle and triangulate a third person into the conflict. And that's a problem for two reasons. One is because it means that that conflict then starts to spread. Now, before it was just two people angry at each other, but after someone gets triangulated in, now there's a third person. And it's very easy to build all these triangles where it's a fourth and a fifth. In fact, I mean, families can be split. Churches can be split. Communities can be torn apart because two people start out in conflict and then enough people get triangulated in that you have these two factions at war with each other. So conflict spreads from it. And then that's a special problem because that triangle does not resolve the conflict, but it feels like it does. One of the greatest dangers of that kind of triangulation is that, you know, you, you have a fight with someone and you call this other person and you vent to them and you complain about it and you rant about all of the issues going on. And at the end of that, you actually feel kind of better. You actually feel like there's been this resolution, but nothing has been done about the actual conflict itself. It's still there. And so it can keep us from pursuing true reconciliation. In scripture, instead of seeking triangles, we are always called when we have conflict with someone to go to them directly. For example, Jesus in Matthew 18 says this. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Which is to say, when there's conflict, don't go tell other people about it, but go to your brother, you and he alone, and seek reconciliation. Seek to deal with the conflict that you're having. Now, it's true in Matthew 18 that then if that does not work, there's a place for bringing in um, other people from the church to help. But even there, you're not going and talking to them about the conflict. What you're doing is you're going to them and bringing them in to help moderate this dispute that you're having with your brother. We always need to go to the person directly when there's conflict. Now, a lot of us struggle with that. And I think what we say, and this is understandable, we say, but wait, isn't there a place for, like, blowing off steam? Isn't there a place for verbally processing with friends and, you know, and, and stuff like that? Can't you get, like, support from other people? And the answer to that is yes, you can. Sometimes that is fine. But there are also plenty of times that it's sinful. And so that's where I just want to suggest the way to tell the difference usually is simply to ask is this conversation, is this blowing off steam, whatever, is this encouraging me, leading me to then be able to go to the other person, right? Am I just processing through like why I feel hurt with a friend so that then I can better express that to the other person? That's fine. But if it's an instead, if you're doing it instead of talking to the other person, then it's wrong. So don't make triangles. And connected with that, also watch out when other people try to make you that third arm of a triangle. Watch out for when you're getting triangulated into conflict. Because all of us have had that experience, and when that happens, two pieces of practical advice. One is, don't enter into it. Don't get sucked in. 
Now, I don't by that mean don't listen. It is fine to listen to the other person and be empathetic towards the other person and, and hear their anger, but don't let yourself get angry. There's almost always two sides to this thing. Don't yourself start striking out. Don't, don't start triangulating in even more people, which is the work of gossip. So don't enter in in that way. Instead, encourage the person to go to the other party and seek resolution. So lines and circles and triangles. We need to watch out for all of those shapes as they often drive conflict and lead us away from peace. But then one last question as we close, which is, how do we do that? Because a lot of that is actually really hard. Breaking the cycle, crossing the line, going to the person directly instead of making a triangle, those are all actually painful, hard things. And to answer that question, we need one more shape, which is we need the shape of the cross. It is actually the cross of Jesus, the peace that Jesus works at the cross, that is the thing that enables us to seek that kind of peace. In Ephesians 2, there's actually two kinds of peace Paul talks about together. The one that we stressed already is peace between human beings, between groups of human beings. But Paul also talks about peace between us and God. So in Ephesians 2.12, he describes the reality that we are separated from and at war with God. He says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So we're in rebellion against God. We, we are not a part of his people. We do not have his promises. We're strangers to him. And so as a consequence, there is this division between us and God. And then Paul declares to us the good news that God acts to bring peace. So in verse 13, it says that in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That what God does in the death of Jesus on the cross is he actually works peace for us. He crosses the line that's between us. He draws near to us. That he breaks the circle. And as a consequence of that, then we're told that God works so that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So there's a connection there of peace together. We're together being reconciled, but we're being reconciled to God. He is creating that reconciled relationship with us through Jesus. What does that mean? And how is that connected to us making peace? Let me suggest this. The real reason all of this is hard is that in order to make peace, somebody always has to pay. In order to make peace, somebody always has to pay. Here's what I mean. If somebody has done something wrong to you, you have two choices. Choice one is to try to make them pay for it. And that's what conflict is at root. Someone hurts us, and we demand that they do something to pay that back to us. Seeking peace, in essence, means that we're saying that instead of that person, we're going to pay for it ourselves, right? There's a debt. You, you've been hurt. Like, you, you deserve some sort, of some sort of compensation. And if you choose not to demand that of somebody else, you are, in essence, paying that cost yourself. And that is why it is hard. Now, of course, we should recognize in human relationships, unlike in our relationship with God, that both parties tend to have those debts to each other, and that's why it's especially sticky. 
that both sides usually kind of owe each other some payback. But it's just a reality that in order to make peace, someone has to pay. And I think the truest, most human objection to seeking peace, right? People dress this up, but at its root, I think this is the truest objection, and I feel it, is simply to say, man, it's not fair. Because it's not fair. This person has done something wrong, and by forgiving them, you are in a sense choosing to not make them pay for it. You're choosing to suffer instead of them. It is the truest, most human objection that it's not fair. But that is the beating heart of the gospel. In order to make peace, someone always has to pay. And the whole point of Jesus in Scripture is that in order to make peace, God pays what we owe him. That we have rebelled against him, we have destroyed the world he has made, he has spat in our face, and in justice he has every right to demand that we pay for that. And what God does in love in Jesus Christ is he says, instead, I am the one who is going to pay the price to forgive you. That the cross is actually the measure of the debt that we pay God, or that we owe God, and it is a debt that he chooses to pay. And that vision of the cross and the peace that God paid for there, that is actually the way that we then are able to seek peace in the world. The cross inspires our peace-seeking. Nothing will impress on you the beauty of turning from conflict and seeking peace like seeing the beauty of God's love and grace demonstrated in Jesus Christ's death for us. The cross demands our peace-seeking. If we owe this debt to God, this unimaginable debt that he chose to pay for himself, what right do we have to demand that our neighbor then pays us these lesser debts that they owe us? And the cross enables our peace-seeking. This is actually the most important thing, so let me explain it. Why does that circle exist? Why does conflict continue? I think at its deepest level, it's because human beings have a need to be loved and valued. Really, the root of that conflict is that I look at this other human being and I say, I need to feel love and valued, and you are not doing that to me. You failed to do that to me. And so the circle begins. Breaking the circle means that we are choosing not to have that need met by this other person. That's another way of saying that we have to pay a price. It's saying, man, I need to feel loved and valued. In a sense, as a human being, I deserve to have you love and value me. And you're not doing it. And I'm going to choose to break the circle anyway. The only way we can do that, the only way we can give up that need from that other person, is if we're finding love and value somewhere deeper. And the place that we can find that, as Christians, is ultimately in the gospel. Because God in Jesus loves and values us, that actually meets our need to feel those things. And then that sets us free to pursue peace with others. We're free because I can say, I don't actually need your love anymore. I mean, it would be great, <laughs> I would prefer it, but I don't need you to love and value me. And therefore, I'm free to forgive and seek peace. So friends, that's our calling. Let's seek peace. Let's speak peace. And let's do it all under the shadow of the cross, letting the peace that God worked there with us shape us and our relationship with each other.
Let the cross heal our conflicts and supply what we need. Let's pray. Father, this is a big calling. This is a hard calling, but it's a good one. I give you thanks, Lord Jesus Christ, that you came and preached peace to us who were far off as well as to those who were near. You are reconciling us all to each other by your blood. Thank you for the grace and the forgiveness you've shown us. And I pray that you would therefore make us people of peace. Lord, we live in a world of division and hatred, of bitterness, where people draw lines and circles of hurt perpetuate conflicts and people get sucked in in these triangles of, that, that divide us and turn us into factions. And Lord, the world is just so far away from this. And I pray, Father, that you would first deliver us from that worldly way of thinking. Forgive us for the ways that we so often, like the world, hate peace and desire only war. And teach us to be people that love and seek peace in our hearts and in our lives. And then as we do that, I pray that you would restore us in community, in relationship with each other. I pray specifically for those of us who are divided from specific people that we're thinking about this morning, that you would work restoration between us and them. And I pray, Lord, that as you do that, we might show the goodness of your peace and love to the world around us that they might come to know Jesus Christ more and more and rejoice in the grace that you offer us in him. Pray this in his name, Lord Jesus. Amen.